Yoram, you have to do the introduction in your in your special voice. Hello, my little face babies. You forgot no. it. You immediately forgot it. Hello, my lovely face baby. You've been training all day for this and you just dropped it the second like there was the spotlight on you and everything went away. Yeah. Uh Yaron was sorry. sending me videos of himself being a, a fashion influencer, a makeup influencer this morning, which is like actually honestly a delight seeing as normally in the morning I get like here's the the horror story of Germany or COVID or whatever. So <laughs> I appreciate fashion influencer Yoram, and I learned a very important fact about BB cream, which, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you want to learn, you'd have to subscribe to his channel, I presume. Yes. Yeah, I, I am doing more stuff in front of cameras now in terms of like, yeah, um, video calls. Uh, the other day I had a presentation I was giving over um, a Zoom call or whatever. And uh, I had my nice camera and like the light in my face and suddenly I could see like my entire skin in like high definition. I was like, oh no, I have to do something you about get that. And I Googled just like on, on YouTube, uh, makeup for men, watched like one video and it was like, you, you need BB cream. It's like, okay, I'm going to buy BB cream. And now I have that. I have no idea really what it is, but it works. So you put it on your face and it gets a little bit less red. And that's what I, I also, I mean, like makeup for men, that's just questions. Like is your face, I mean, you've got facial hair more likely than I do but what's happening about your face that needs a special makeup? It's mostly just like a very irritated red skin that like gets very like bright red from time to time. You can really see that on video and it really annoys me. And so I have to like cover that up. Also, you can do something about like the, the dark areas under your eyes, but I'm not there yet. Like I would need a different product that I couldn't find yet because like in the video, they were using like the brand name of like a UK brand. Yeah. Maybe that. I mean, I think always tired is very much the the look of the last 12 months, I would say. That's like thematic. Yeah. It's, people will, you know, when you look back at makeup styles, you'll you remember, oh, that was from the 2000s because they've plucked the f*** <laughs> out of their eyebrows. Or, oh, look, that's from like the 1990s because they've got like that really dark lip liner. And this will be like, oh, yeah, that was 2021 to 2022. <laughs> Everybody was, was like exhausted all the time. <laughs> yeah, doesn't, yeah I, I don't think anybody ever really would make any take any offense in me looking tired and reddish and and full of spots i take offense yeah but you take offense i in want everything beauty vegan. i demand beauty and perfection by the way this is plants and pipettes it's a podcast where we normally talk about plants um <laughs> and that's i mean you you chose to listen to this podcast i'm sure you know what it's called so it's probably okay that yeah. we didn't introduce and actually the theme of this week's episode is very much laziness i would say um <laughs> Like, That's a little bit unfair to our guest because we have a guest today. <laughs> no, I mean like the the inspiration then. We can get to the guest in a second. I would I would say there's an element of laziness in there as well and it would really be better if he wasn't listening in right now, but anyway. So like usually before we do the episodes where we discuss a paper, like one of us finds a paper, you know, in our random searchings, sends it to the other one and the other one like checks that it's not crazy and is like, "Oh yeah, sure, we'll do it." So Yarm sent me a paper earlier this week and I was like, yeah, that's fine. I, I didn't click on the link. I couldn't be bothered. Like literally the two seconds it would have taken me to follow the link was too much effort. And then he's like, ah, ha, ha, really, can we do that? And then I was like, what is it? Like, is it something ridiculous about, I don't know. It's Yoram. It could be anything. Um, clicked on the link. It was a paper by Yoram. Um, <laughs> but then like, the extra laziness kicked in and I was like, okay, this is actually a win for all of us. Yoram already knows what's in the paper, theoretically. I don't have to read the paper because 
it's his problem. I can just ask questions and kind of nod a bit and we can get an awesome guest on. And also the guest is a very dear friend of ours who I haven't talked to for a while and was planning to have a chat with. And so there's like the extra element of laziness where like <laughs> can also catch up with a friend multitasking somehow. Yeah, um, so this will be like an episode that does everything for you, Tegan. It does your homework. Um, it takes care of your social contacts to people you haven't <laughs> talked to in a while. Um, and the listeners everything just have to one. deal with it. <laughs> they just have to go along. Um, so yeah, I think now it's time to introduce our guest. We're very happy. Um, Etienne Maya is with us, uh, a good friend of ours. We work together, all, all together. Uh, three of us worked in a lab together for uh, several years. I don't know how many, like five years maybe? All together, like something like that. Um, it was a really good time, and now we all like spread across the world. Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> two of us stayed in Germany, one left Germany. That's across the world to me. Dear God. <laughs> so, hi, Etienne. It's so nice to have you with us. Hi. <laughs> Etienne, just nothing more to contribute there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just don't know what to, I just don't know what to say because um, the introduction is perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had this tradition of saying like "thank you for the nice introduction" whenever we had like lab meetings and stuff. Um, to the point where people were just like, "Okay, yeah, it's Etienne now," and then you would come up, with, "Yeah, thank you for the nice introduction." <laughs> well, I think we could give some background about who Etienne is, at least scientifically, what he would like to share with people, as far as like what you've worked on, what you've done, these kind of things that might be a little bit of background. Yeah. How do I start? I studied biochemistry in France a long time ago. And um, then I did my PhD because, you know, I didn't want to work. And I wanted to continue my studies until, until I couldn't study anymore. So I did a PhD. And after a PhD, I decided to continue science because science is fun. Then I moved to Australia. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where I almost met Tegan because yeah. um, I was in the same place, in the same center, in the same yeah research institute. And she arrived just after I left. Mm -hmm. And then... Very um, tiny world. Yeah, very tiny world. Then I moved back to France and then I decided to move to Germany. And I, when I arrived in Germany, Tegan arrived just after me in the lab. And I've been studying mitochondria for yeah, almost 20 years now. Yeah, and, and that's and weird in several ways, I would say. Because firstly, you studied mitochondria for a long time in a non-mitochondrial environment. So you were in kind of a plant chloroplasty place, thus making you odd and special. And then also, like, within the mitochondrial world, like, you are studying plant mitochondria. And I think most people think of, like, most scientists generally would think, you know, animal mitochondria, mitochondrial diseases in humans more specifically when you say, I'm studying mitochondria. Yeah, yeah. I, I got that several times at conferences. People asking me, why do I work with plants? I mean, if I study mitochondria, what's the point? Yeah, why do you? Um, why do you do that? Please justify uh, your existence. <laughs> Because I, I like plants. Um, mm. I prefer plants to animals. That sounds fair. I mean, that was pretty much what got me to plants. I was like, I didn't want to kill mice. I didn't want to work with yeast. So I was like, I mean, he didn't, plants sorry, he didn't say he didn't, didn't like killing animals. He said he didn't like animals. This, there could be some overlap there. That's <laughs> not unfair. Fair but enough, yeah. yeah. 
Now killing animals, no, but I did not do that often. <laughs> it, it, no, my my interest was was just plants. I was always been fascinated by plants, and I wanted to to work with plants. Um, there was no other option. Yeah. Even even if it's maybe the hardware for and sometimes, but it's a no. Couldn't couldn't work with medical stuff. Is it harder to work with mitochondria and plants than in other organisms? I mean, I know that like yeast is is easy. Like yeast, you grow in big buckets and you can isolate a ton of stuff, whatever you're interested in. Um, but like with the harder, um, yes, yes and no. Um, it's very similar, but there there are some downside so plants that grow slower for example than yeast so you need to wait a bit longer uh, but that's general to plant research um, in plant you also have the green contamination <laughs> that is can be annoying um, mm -hmm. but in, in in general you you can do you can do the same thing yeah I think the green contamination is actually a good um, sort of segue into into the paper that we're talking about today. Um, because it's about, so the title is Complex Zone Profiling Reveals Novel Insights into the Composition and Assembly of the Mitochondrial ATP Synthase of Arabidopsis Taliana. And ATP Synthase um, in the mitochondria has a sort of sibling, I don't know if it's the right way, if it's sibling, like they're not really directly related, a sort of lookalike in the chloroplast, right, in a completely different organelle. So chloroplast as photosynthesis, mitochondria do respiration. Um, so they are both very important. They both um, produce ATP in different ways and they have a very similar looking enzyme. Like, is that, like, was that problematic to study mitochondrial ATP synthase while there was chloroplast around that also had ATP synthase? Mm, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. No, um, I mean, just to correct you, uh, the the ATP synthases from chloroplast and mitochondria are extremely related. Oh, okay. The, uh, it's uh, ATP synthase from the vacuole and plasma membrane that are different. Uh, but structurally, the, the mitochondria and, uh, and the chloroplastic one, they, they are almost identical. I mean, that would be a bit wrong, but they are very... very very related, and they all have a bacterial, same bacterial ancestor, so it's the same family of ATP synthesis. Oh, okay. See, I, uh, did, did we mention that my name is on the paper as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you should actually mention the first author, so who's on the paper, where it was published, just for details. Yeah, so it's from Helene Röhricht, uh, me, Joram Schwarzmann, and from Etienne, Etienne Meyer. Uh, mm -hmm. And published in wait, did you know that better than I do because I closed my tab, Etienne. Wait, what is uh, BBA Bioenergetics? And, and this is forgot what BBA is. It's Biochemica Acta. Sorry. Yeah, Biochemica at Biophysica Acta. Probably like Latin for like stuff about biochemistry and biophysics. Definitely. And this would like also be an important point to add that Etienne had a very special relationship with Yoram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you were my mentor. Um, as technically still, you still are uh, because I haven't still submitted, but um, yeah, you were my, my supervisor and we worked together uh, on my project. Uh, and so we also worked together sort of follow, follow up, although it has nothing to do with my actual project, but it has some, to do with some of the skills that I learned for my project that we work together here. Um, 
and I mean what I to me was really interesting I'm also like mentioned on this paper now as an independent researcher which I find quite interesting because like I'm not affiliated with any bio um, lab anymore uh, my the, the university I'm working at is like completely different I don't do any research there I do science communication so I don't really like I couldn't put their name on the paper because I have nothing to do with the work that I did here for for this paper um, so yeah I found that I found it interesting to because I haven't seen that on other papers yet that there was like as an institution there was like just it's independent not very research. common is that it's often like this person used to be affiliated with this institute when they did the work as opposed to yeah where they currently are yeah which can make it super difficult to find people also so if I'm like looking for Yoram and it says oh used to be affiliated here and then like you haven't been there for four years it's actually harder yeah. to trace you across the internet yeah yeah, and to go back to this independent researcher, it's just really funny because when I um, submitted the, the article, you always need to enter the affiliations. And I had to create an affiliation that was called independent researchers. And so when I started typing it, it was University of Independence. Or, and like, no, 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 it's, it's independent researcher. So I created a new affiliation just for you. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> I had to hack the system just to get my, like... I did because I didn't want to give credit to my old institution because I wasn't working there for years and um, I didn't want to involve my new place of work. So you had to make up one. That's, that's fun. That actually makes me um, think about. So there's been this uh, like fake researcher that's appeared on a lot of papers recently. Actually, a French researcher. Um, is it Cecile Nou is the name? Camille Nou. Camille, maybe. Yeah. Camille. Camille Nou. So this is like something that. Um, the name has been put on a lot of papers as a protest um, against, I think it's against the way we do funding and, and the fact that when we give, we, we give out funding or when the governments give out funding, there's so much importance put on just the number of um, papers that you've published as opposed to, you know, what projects you've designed and what other, you know, who you've supervised and what other work you've done. So I think there's a bit of a protest to this. And in order to do this protest, a whole lot of people have put this name, Cecile Nou, on a lot of just different papers randomly, um, which then means that, um, sorry, Camille, Cecile, Camille, Camille um, yeah. has like this, she, she looks like an extraordinary scientist if you look at these kind of measurements of publication, right? And it's all fake and it's kind of showing, haha, look how stupid your system is because we faked this. I'm personally not super pro this. Um, but I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how they got around that kind of issue of like dealing with a f like have they just chosen an identity for her? She now has a complete fake identity, and now she's like always at this place and always with this email address, and and that's who it is. Yeah, I think so. I think they they came up with like I it was I think even in the story that I read that um, even the institution has a sort of significance that it's uh, that they attributed that name to. Um, yeah, it's it's not independent. It's also like an institute of something. Um, but I, I forgot what it exactly was. Have you heard of this, um, Etienne? I briefly, yeah, but I, mm. I didn't read about it. And I don't know any details. I'm yeah. not, not anymore in a French system. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it's it's happens to be a French person here. I think it's a more general statement about the system. But it does make a definitely a... 
I have problems with it because you you don't want that there needs to be proof of existence before you can publish, right? Like you don't want that, oh, I've not seen your name in the system before, therefore you can't get into the system. Um, this becomes really problematic with with like especially people in different countries with different names, like with, you know, this, it just, I find it very, very concerning um, to have this kind of, yeah, you have to trust scientists at one point, right? You have to trust that they, they do exist and they do do work. You can't prove everything from a publishing point of view. Yeah. Might be my own personal work bias <laughs> coming in there, but like that just, so, like, one example I can think of, like, really off the top of my head is we've previously talked about how it's it's getting more common to include, like, authors. So, if you're doing research on um, land that is owned by Indigenous people, it's getting more common to acknowledge them or to even include them in the authorship. Like, you have access to resources and you have their knowledge. And this is part of the science that's been done. So, these people should be credited with authorship. But... If that person has not had like your your formal scientific training, they might not be in an academic system. And you know, if if there was a system where you you go and check, oh, did they go to the university X or blah blah blah, like, yeah, highly problematic, highly highly problematic <laughs> to me. <laughs> it makes me anxious. <laughs> anyway, on with the paper. Sorry, that was a bit of a segue. I had a little bit of a distraction. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do exist, like, I, I, even though I have, like, a dodgy um, affiliation, uh, which is being, just being independent, I do exist. Uh, I can vouch for that. I just looked it up. It's like the Kogitamus Laboratory, uh, where Camille Nu is um, is hosted, and they are the first member of this, um, and it's sort of, like, the whole institution is uh, set up to be also, like, sort of an activist uh, institution. It's not really a research facility. Um which is also like on the on their website they, they don't really mention that it's like a fake person it, it's like all written as if that person would exist and that's yeah it's i also i have a weird feeling about this <laughs> like could could you imagine if like somebody emailed you yarm and was now like hey we don't we don't believe you exist like <laughs> i mean prove you exist i could easily point at like many pictures of me and my voice and everything of me um, how would we know that was the same you that was capable of doing this science that's in this paper i could send them the raw code where i did my analysis with <laughs> like okay that's it yeah that's that would be fairly easy to do for me <laughs> but yeah so back to the paper so what it's actually about it's about arabidopsis right um our favorite model uh what do we always say our favorite lab rat or one of our favorite lab rats in the, in the <laughs> model plant yeah um, and it's about ATP synthase. So, so Etienne, what is ATP synthase? So the ATP synthase is um, was one of the most fantastic molecular machine uh, in terms of enzyme. And what it does is that it's producing ATP. So ATP is the the energy currency of of the cell. So um, in the mitochondria, it's producing a lot of ATP, and this ATP would be exported in the cell to to make the cell work basically mm -hmm. um and yeah it's part of respiration right it's like the the final step where after during respiration the breakdown of of carbon compounds with like an electron flow that's sort of made by this or like powered by this um in the end um this energy is 
turned into ATP and that can be used by the cell. And in, in the chloroplast, it's like photosynthesis where electrons move about. And at the end, this electron movement um, sort of by proxy is translated into into ATP molecules that are then used by the cell. I mean, it's not really the electrons, it's like the protons. It's like another level of complexity on there. Um, but the idea is like something creates energy. It's like either burning of carbon compounds or light that hits um, the photosynthetic compounds, uh, like complexes. And then in the end, you get ATP in the cell that can be used to power stuff. Um, and yeah. Can we really quickly talk about like how... ATP, like, like how the enzyme looks and works. Cause I think like this, yeah. it basically, like, I mean, and maybe Etienne, you can help explain it. It basically has bits that turn. It's kind of like a helicopter. Do you think that's the best way? There must be a better analogy for this. So there's a stalk. Yeah, it's not, it looks like a flower maybe. Yeah. Some people say it looks like a mushroom. Okay. Well, you, have a, you, have a, you have a head and a, and a foot and the, the foot is anchored into the, the membrane. Um, in a membrane and as Johan said during respiration you have a buildup of a proton gradients and this proton will be going back into the, the mitochondrial matrix through the ATP synthase and every time there's a proton going back the the foot is turning a little bit and so um, the more protons are going the faster it turns and every time it turns the 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 foot is say, turning with the, the with the base and this will make the head turn mm -hmm. and in the head it's um, a trimer uh, uh, yeah a trimer of dimers <laughs> <laughs> three lots of two exactly and um, a, um, inside of the the foot there's um, a little it's very mechanical actually um but like I don't for me know. i think the coolest thing is that you can like people have actually looked at this they've visualized it right there's there's an experiment that a group did where they basically stuck the bottom to you know a solid table or something and then like kind of put a glow stick on the top and you can see this like little glow stick spinning around and i'm obviously like completely oversimplifying but it's basically that right you can see yeah. you the can rotations see which is just like this is the kind of really beautiful biology where you can like see molecules. I mean, it's not quite molecular level. It's a, a big enzyme complex, but like you can see it move and do its thing. And I'll see if we can put a link into that in the show notes um, because it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's, it's a really amazing machine. Only when you think about it, it's like this, uh, it's, it's, it's like a, an engine and you know, mm -hmm. a car. Uh, you have the, 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 the proton that, creates a movement and then the movement is translated to the head where um, the ATP is produced. So there's a, the, the whole machinery to transfer the, the movement across across the whole enzyme. It's, it's quite yeah. fascinating. Very clever. It, to me, it reminds me a little bit of like a water wheel when you have like a river flowing over a wheel and then the wheel turns and that's sort of the protons flowing across um, the, the base and then sort of at the end of the shaft inside the, the mill you have like some tool that does something in this case it's producing atp with like the movement of the water um so yeah that's 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 really cool and um you work with not only like with 
like ATP in itself, ATP synthase is, is cool, but you are specifically interested in in the assembly, so in how this comes together. So why is that so interesting to to look at how these complexes are made? I mean, I know that you're not only working on ATP synthase, but in general, like how big complexes come together. So what is so fascinating about that? Well, I mean, I'm doing basic research, so um, I want to know how all things are, are working. And uh, my model is the all the respiratory chain in plant mitochondria, and I try to find out how it's built. There's there's nothing so I don't know, fascinating or exciting about it. It's just just my my topic. <laughs> I, I don't I don't I, I don't know how to. I don't think I can oversell it. You know, it's just, it's <laughs> I it's. I, If I was working with human, I would say, ah, oh, you know, there's all these diseases that are caused by mitochondrial dysfunction. And then if you know how things are working, but I'm, I don't, I don't work with humans. So <laughs> I just want to know how it works. I mean, then like all plant people say, then it's because of uh, future food. It's help. It helps the breeders. Um, they no, can but I think. I think that we can go back to a more basic question. So you're saying like you want to understand how it works. So like how is it the, the assembly process, looking at the assembly is, is helping to understand how it works. And I think this this makes a lot of sense. It's like this kind of reverse engineering thing where like you can break things down and then sort of see how they get built up again and see them at different stages. And that's a really important part of understanding function, right? Exactly. And I mean, basing your research saying, oh, I want to make more food or plant work better if you don't know how it works you know it, you go straight into the wall so and i prefer trying to find out how it works and maybe one day we'll get an application or somebody gets an application for my work that's fine if there's no application it's also fine as long as we make the knowledge progress yeah Now, I always found it super fascinating to think about these big molecular machines and how how they're made because you look at Like I mean, I I work with photosystems, uh, photosystems, photosystem one uh, involved in photosynthesis, and it's like this this large, complicated machine that manages to turn light energy into chemical energy. And I found that always so fascinating how all of this comes together because it has like parts that break or that can break when they're left alone, and um, the whole thing together works very well. But um, that only works because all of these parts come together. Um, and that's what I always found so very fascinating. And that's also what I find in, uh, fascinating about the idea of how ATP synthase is made. Like you have this, like, as we said, like this, this fascinating mechanical engine thing sitting in a, in a, in a membrane of an organelle in a cell. And usually when we look at it, it, it already sits there, but it came there at one point, like something put it together And I find it very interesting to think about that, like how it came together and how it, um, yeah, how it becomes a functional big engine. Uh, so what, how did you then approach this? I mean, you, so you had ATP synthase or you had like complexes, big complexes. How do you look at them to figure out how they, they are ex uh, essentially made? So I'm, um Yeah, I'm a, I'm a biochemist, so what I usually do is that I isolate mitochondria from, from plant tissue, and then I solubilize the membrane and separate the complexes on uh, on native gels. Yeah. And and then, um, so you can see individual complexes, and in terms of assembly, when when you can 
find a situation where the assembly is not working uh, or if it's more more active, then you might see some fragments of the complexes being built on, on your gel. So this and like this the isolation itself is quite like a kind of precise uh, method, right? Because so you've got first off you've got like an entire plant. So you've got like let's say a tobacco or a, a rabidopsis in this case. So we start with an rabidopsis. And then you've got to rip the bits off the rabidopsis. So let's say like we first we rip the leaves off discard the roots in the soil and then you've got to break up the the plant so that the cells come out but not even that you break it even further down so that the mitochondria come out but you don't want to actually break the mitochondria themselves you want them to stay intact right and then you you pull them all out you sort of use centrifugation and and you know all your right solutions and you get those separate and then (laughs) you want to start breaking those mitochondria now that you've got them separate but you also again want to break them enough that you sort of get everything out of them, but not so much that you destroy what's inside them. So like, say the mitochondria is now a house. You want to like rip the roof off without like destroying the wardrobe inside the house because like, you know, the wardrobe, it's an Ikea wardrobe. It can also break down into other components. So here you've got like protein complexes. They also are made of proteins. You could break them down and you don't want to do that. So you want to keep them whole. So again, it's this like weird balancing where you want to break it, but not break it too much so you've got like just the right amount of breaking and that's like the solubilization where you use like force and detergents but just in the right amounts to kind of get things like broken but not too broken yeah yeah exactly the the good thing about mitochondria is they're extremely robust so you can be very very violent at the beginning and they don't break and he's saying that because like we worked on pl- like chloroplasts and chloroplasts are not not robust. So if you do the same process and you look wrong at the chloroplast halfway through, <laughs> it just explodes. Like if you put too much light, it explodes. Like if you spin it too much, it explodes. It's really <laughs> yeah. mitochondria are the winner here, I would say. Yeah, I remember I was doing like some mitochondrial preparations as well in the beginning uh, when I worked with you. And um, like literally one of the first steps is to take like a large stone mortar and pestle, like a big, heavy kind. And then you just like start pounding and you pound like for how long do you do that? For like 15 minutes or more? Did like yeah. crush the cells. And then, and, then, and then you filter and you squeeze your filter until you cannot squeeze anything out. Yeah. So I, I remember with the chloroplast, it's like you have a paintbrush and you're delicately painting the chloroplast back into the solution. So they're like, they're kind of clustered on the bottom. But you don't, if you touch the, the, the chloroplast with the paintbrush, they'll explode. So you've got to like paint, gent- like you're not painting the chloroplast, you're painting waves that gently flow across the chloroplast and sort of ease them back into solution. And this whole thing, it, you have to do it at four degrees. So you're standing in a giant fridge. Um, it's dark usually because you don't want too much light and you're like gently like <laughs> singing to these freaking cl- like really that's <laughs> mitochondria the way to go that's the lesson here and next door is like etienne just like pounding and pounding and pressing <laughs> and squeezing and attacking his like samples and puts then- his finger on the test tube and just like shakes it vigorously and it's all good oh. yeah I like the image. <laughs> yeah, all organelles are not created equal. Um, but mitochondria also cannot fix inorganic carbon, so there is that. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, yeah. 
we can, we can discuss about like which organelle is actually superior in the end. Like I'm I'm on the fence on this. I work with both, and I I love them both equally. Like it's like how can you decide what your favorite child is? Like um, this is have how, one child. It's not too hard. This, <laughs> this is how I feel about chloroplasts and mitochondria. Um, but so yeah, you separate them on a gel, right? And it's like a method, also like pretty physical again. Like um, you have uh, this this gel made of polyacrylamide uh, that has like different pore sizes, like little tiny holes. And they um, you set it up in a way that the, the pore sizes are bigger at one end than on the other end. And then you use uh, electrical power to pull everything through there. Um, and then everything, like all your samples, they move just as far as they can until the, the holes in the gel get too small that they can actually move forward. And it's sort of where they get stuck. And then you get this like size separation like you get like the big stuff on top and the small stuff in the bottom um and i actually like doing that in the lab like this was one of my like if i think back at like what what experiment i would like to do again it's like this this like week-long experiment where like isolate the samples on monday um like either gently with a brush or with a mortar and pestle with like a lot of force um and then put that onto one of these like large native gels where like the 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 proteins are left in in sort of in the native state for as long as possible and like separate them all how then you get like this beautiful blue gel where you can actually with your eye you can see all of the different bands all of the places where the, the proteins are and then you analyze that further um and when it worked it was one of my favorite experiments to do ever but there's so many steps that can go wrong in the way um that often enough such a week wasn't as beautiful as I described it right now. Often enough, like somewhere in the middle, you were like, oh, damn, <laughs> my, my gel nice. broke. I mean, <laughs> you, you, see that you see it. You get a visualization of like protein. You can basically see the proteins. I mean, it's a little bit not quite that direct, but it, it is visual, visible on. And you can hold the gel in your hand and see the things with your eyes, which is a little bit different from like doing um, sequencing with, with DNA, right? It's that. Mm -hmm a bit less direct i think protein gels has a nice directness to it but so in this paper now um you didn't just look at them visually like i did um, with, with my eyes but you actually use something called complex on profiling um can you tell us what that is sure uh <laughs> very easy I very like, easy. here's like the hardest thing to describe and go etienne <laughs> Suck it. <laughs> we'll take the easy ones, like describing like what a plant yeah. is, and we'll just leave you with like maybe afterwards you could also explain like how to um what the meaning of life is and um sure. Maybe yeah. I Sorry. can explain the blue native again. <laughs> <laughs> and then pass it to Yoram. That's also fine. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm sorry. So uh, <laughs> So you have this gel and you've already separated everything based on yeah. your size. So basically, it's um, you do mass spectrometry, so you try to identify the proteins that are in the gel. But what you do before doing that is you cut your gel in many fractions. So what we did, we cut every uh, gel in 30 fractions, so that you have, in a way, so that we have one complex in one fraction, but you also analyze the gel that is between different bands and within different complexes to, because there are proteins there that you cannot see because they're not abundant enough. But with a mass spectrometer, uh, you can identify everything. And then once you have that, so you have um, 
30 MOSFET datasets. Then you have to reconstitute the profile, the abundance profile of a protein across the whole gel. So if you take an example of one protein that would be um, in a complex that is in fraction 4 and in fraction 12, then um, in general you also find it in the fraction that are neighboring this, so there would be a little bit in fraction 2, a little bit more in fraction 3, a lot in fraction 4, a little bit less in fraction 5, and then that's a peak of abundance. And that will constitute across the 30 fractions for all the proteins that we identify. So at the end, we got 800 different profiles, something like that. So 800 different proteins that we could follow across the gel. So the, the point of doing this is basically, so you've got one protein. Can we, can we have a name for one protein that's part of the ATP synthase so I can just pretend it's this? Yeah, uh, you can, it's easy. They're called ATP and then A, B, C, D. So, All right, let's go with ATPA because that's just the <laughs> easiest. So the ATPA, it has a size and that's like, it's we measure size of proteins in kilodaltons. So ATPA is like, what, 70, 60 kilodaltons maybe? Yeah, maybe a bit less, but it's okay. 55? <laughs> <laughs> and we're precise on this podcast, so go to the protein database now it's and tell 50. me. <laughs> 50.24. So, so let's say that the ATPA weighs 55 kilodaltons, something like that. Um, so those really small individual ATPAs, there's going to be like way down at the bottom of the gel where all the kind of small stuff is. Like there's going to be some ATPA there. But, you know, ATPA, it also likes to hang out with ATPB, and ATPB also weighs 55. So there might also be a bit of ATPA at, like, 110 kilodaltons because that's where it's hanging with ATPB. And we know it's hanging with ATPB there because when Etienne looks at his data, he can also see ATPB in exactly the same spot that ATPA hang is hanging out with. And then it gets one step more complicated, so, like... Maybe once ATPA and ATPB have hooked up, they might want to grab another subunit. Can, can we have a name here, Etienne? What's coming in next? C. Um, ATPC. ATPC. So ATPC, let's say that's 400 kilodaltons. So now you've got <laughs> 110 <laughs> from eight. Shut up. I'm making it up as I go along. We all know this. So ATPA 55, ATPB 55. Together they're making 100. So you see this band of ATPA and B at 100. And 110, I can't even count. And then <laughs> also you find ATP A, B, and C all together at the size that's like, what do we say? 400, 500, something 500, like that. 500, yeah. 500. Whereas ATP C, it's not in that lower band that's only 110, because obviously it's not hanging out there, but it might also be, you know, by itself at 400 and then also with ATPD off somewhere else at like 860. And again, I'm making all these numbers up, but you can basically track which proteins are hanging out with which proteins roughly. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Rough, roughly. Like you roughly, definitely roughly because you... You can always have um, several protein complexes of the same size in the same fraction. Mm -hmm. So you find protein, you, you find a lot of protein in every fraction, but that doesn't mean that they're all together in one complex. But that's where what comes into play what you said before, right? That they, they sort of have these shoulders in these peaks. They're not just like in one fraction. They're also a little bit in the neighboring fractions um, because it's like 
in biology hardly anything ever is like a strict yes or no it's always like a gradient um and because of that sort of these other signals around that that help you to correlate things because even though the two complexes might be in the in the most abundance or the most of it is in the same area the um sort of the the, the the rest of the distribution might be different and so if you do some like statistical analysis and looking like how similar are two profiles to one another all of the ones that are actually together in a complex might have a very similar profile while the ones that are together in the other complex that is at the same place they might end up in a different cluster because they they look more alike to one another than they look uh, similar to the first complex so sort of these these smaller signals around that they are also very important um, to make these sort of statistical analysis that, that gives you an idea whether or not these things actually hang out together or whether or not they just happen to be in the same place but not actually interacting um, and doing something together right yes yes but you also need um, a previous knowledge of the composition of the complex mm-hmm um so because if you don't know which protein are supposed to be together you just you can't find out on on your own there's there's too much too many too many data somehow mm-hmm. so you, you you need to have a previous knowledge at, at least a, a basic previous knowledge so if you if you know that the, the complex has 10 subunits if you know eight of them um it's good You can you can start working with that and maybe try to find out the 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 last two by comparing the profiles. Yeah, and I think like the other important thing to sort of add here is that putting together these huge and complicated protein complexes, it is a bit like the IKEA or the the Lego analogy in that there's kind of roughly an order things have to be put together with. So like there is a process and it's not like directly linear. So like. You know, you can group together the wings of the plane for your Lego plane over here and make the body over here and then add them together. You don't have to, like, start with the body and add one piece at a time. But there, there is some sort of rules, right? Like, there's something about an order there. Yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. Well, it helps. Otherwise, it would just be chaos, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, in the paper, you you did this, like, you used a data set that you actually made before, right? You... Um, got one of these like complex zone profiles uh, in Arabidopsis where you could look at everything and you were from like from knowing you I think you were probably studying complex one as I imagine mm-hmm. right yeah yeah it's a it's a study that we published a few years ago yeah like uh, another like it's the is it the largest complex or one of the largest complexes and it's involved in uh, in respiration it's very important there um the plant kind is a little bit special right it has like- i think it is the largest because i remember etienne once coming to ask me how many proteins there were in the different complexes of like the photosynthesis proteins just so that he could prove that his complex <laughs> had more proteins in total than like all of the photosynthetic electron transport chain. There was like a moment of pride there where it's like, check out how many proteins we've got in the mitochondria. But just to turn out a little bit, isn't that like the NDH complex? It's also like super massive and sort of pretty much a complex one in the chloroplast. Yeah, it's 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 related, but it's it does it's not involved in photosynthesis. No, but what I what I I, I know that there's more subunits doing photosynthesis, but if you take the size of 
Photosystem 1, Photosystem 2, and the cytochrome 6F complex, it's about the size of complex 1. So it's yeah, as big like, as the three of them. Yeah, the three main players, except for the ATP yeah. synthase, are yeah. together barely enough to make up a complex 1 in the mitochondria. I um, think we can give you that one. It is superior. <laughs> so you studied that, but sort of you had your, you you created this complex home data set and you looked at all of the things involved with complex one, which is many, we established now, many things are part of complex one, um, but not 800 proteins. And so you realize, look, there is more in my data set. Like I looked at one part of it, but there's like uh, uh, 700 more proteins that I could study and a couple of them belong to ATP synthase. And this was pretty much the starting point, right? Of the, of the study, you, you went back to the data set that you already had and had a, a, a second look in a different direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, I think this is a, somewhere there. No, no. I think you, before you approached me, you, you did some more stuff, right? Like, because I was, I was a bit later into, in, in the chain of, of um, like exploring that. Right. I, I mean, I, I just, I can say now I, I did a little bit of like data wrangling and like reorganized some, some, some some tables and made them a bit more accessible for for analysis um so really a minor part like so the first author helene um and you you did much more work than i did there um but still so you you went in there and what did you discover about ATP synthase so um first i have to say what we knew before so the before people thought that the ATP synthase in plant mitochondria was different in composition than the ATP synthase in yeast and mammal mitochondria, which are the reference organism when we study mitochondria. And there were some, um, some subunits from yeast and, and animal that were not found in, in plants, and there were some subunits that were found in plants, but they had no no one found any any homology with the the yeast and and animal proteins and um when we looked into the 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 profile we found out that some of these plant subunits plant specific subunits they had very very similar profile to um subunit of a subdomain of the complex and funnily it was for example um a protein from yeast that was not conserved that uh, that should have been there, and so when we when we saw that we thought okay maybe we should redo all the homology chairs and all the phylogeny, and when we repeated that we found out that actually the plant specific subunit was not plant specific but was actually homologous to the other subunits in yeast and and, and human. So we basically. Um, reassessed in uh, the the composition and we found out that the composition of the of the plant stp synthase is almost identical hmm. to the composition of the atp synthase in yeast and and and, and human there's there just one subunit that is different so originally people had just missed realizing no, that yeah they, they they missed the homology and you have to say that these subunits are usually very, very tiny proteins, so it's really difficult to do to do homology searches because there's not so much uh, to work with. And this work were done maybe yeah, 
15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I guess in between the, the software uh, just improved so much um, that you can, you can do much better homology searches today than 15 years ago. And in the meantime, no one ever looked at it. That's it. I think that's a good lesson in like recheck, recheck stuff that you've been yeah, told I'm, as a scientist. Of course. I mean, this, this is what you want in, in science. Huh? Yeah, and Confirm and recheck. Especially stuff that involves software that gets like updated and sort of more precise. These homology searches, they compare um, like amino acids of proteins uh, to one another. And obviously you can have, if you have the exact same sequence of amino acids, then you have a very similar function or the same function in your protein. You can be quite sure about that. But sometimes you can exchange some amino acids and uh, have to keep only others because like some are more important than others. And then it becomes sort of wobbly and like less precise and harder to actually find things that do the same but look different. And the better the software gets, the more we can actually find things that do the same thing, although sort of the letters in the in the code of the amino acids don't line up perfectly because some amino acids have like are biochemically very similar to one another but with if you just write down the code it's like two different letters and if you just compare letter by letter you get a mismatch and you say okay it doesn't fit here um, and the better the software gets the more you can include this knowledge about the biology into this sort of computational approach of just comparing two sequences of letters to one another. And I think that plays a role in like getting better search results after like 15 years of sort of continuous updates of the, of the algorithms. Can, can we also just like mention the importance of these kind of homology things in science generally? Like in the wide majority of species, we don't know what the genes do. We've never really researched what different genes do, but we've like found out what a couple of genes do in some species, and then we have another species. So let's say we like start with a rat, like literal rat, and then we see that same gene in, let's say, a monkey or a human, and we've, we, we've already tested what it does in the rat, and then in the monkey or the human, to start with, we just say, yeah, it looks kind of similar. It probably does the same thing. And that's like a huge amount of how genes are annotated function um, in science. And not even like the entire gene. We don't necessarily look at the whole thing. We can also look at like little domains, little bits of that gene and say, oh, yeah, in that gene, we know that bit is responsible, you know, in the mature protein. That bit is what like cuts something. And then if we see that kind of same sequence that does the cutty thing, we're like, oh, yeah, that, that different, completely different gene, it's got a cutty bit in it. So it might be a cutty gene. And that, again, is like a lot of how like genes are defined in science. Like the amount of like there's a, a ton of genes, a majority of genes which have not been examined individually piece by piece in, in like careful experimentation. It's a bit more like looks like that. Yeah. But does that mean now for ATP synthase that a lot of the knowledge that we have from from yeast and, and bacteria that we can apply that easily in plants now? Well, probably uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are in common, or even more um, after this work. But there's still quite a lot of differences, and um, it's always good to 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 start from something that is known somewhere else and try to find out uh, if it's the same. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe if you want to go toward the assembly factors. Uh, 
Ah ja. So the assembly factor, the uh, proteins that are helping the the complex to be assembled. So the they are like uh, the little hands that are building the Legos. <laughs> and um, there, if you do the homology searches, most of the assembly factors that are known from yeast and human, they are not conserved. Or we haven't found anything similar in plants yet. Mm-hmm. So that tells us that um, even if the complex is very, very similar in terms of, of uh, um, bricks uh, the way you assemble the bricks might be slightly different might have like different instruction sets that like if you build a plane like sometimes you start with the, the wings and then build sort of the body or like a base of the body and sometimes you start with the body and then sort of attach the wings later on um, even though like oh, the end result is similar question. Does that happen in, in plants? Like, I mean, Etienne, you must know this from complex one. Like, are they built in different orders in plants? Like, you get kind of the same end product, but you build it by a different pathway because of these assembly factors. Does that happen? Yes. That, uh, and for complex one, definitely. So that's, uh, that's clear. Uh, for the ATP synthesis, it's too early to say because in plants we, we have... We don't know. We have a, a, a small indication from the work um, that says at least one one subunit that seems to be assembled much later in plant than in um, in yeast and, and human. But uh, it's it's too early to be to be too definitive about that. They will have to do uh, additional work and use uh, alternative uh, approaches to, to find out. Um, so is there in this data set more stuff that you want to look at? Like, or did you, did you exhaust it by now? Or do, um, do you want to go now like complex by complex through the entire thing? So I, I had a look for the, so what I'm mostly interested in, so the, the, the respiratory complexes and um, the, the data are not so clear for the other one. They might be, you know, it's, it's not so clear, but the data set is, is, is public. Anybody can look at it. And if they're interested in some mitochondrial, um, complexes, they can, they can have a look or if they want, they can also ask me to, to help to look at it. But, um, personally, I, I think, um, it's kind of exhausted. Because mm. the what what I'm really keen on and it's it's not so clear and I, I, I it it's yeah it's not good enough for that and um, yeah I cannot I cannot look at everything I cannot do everything yeah yeah uh, yeah I remember when like I I created a very similar data set but in in chloroplast um, uh, and I remember that when people were giving like presentations of talking about some protein involved in a, in a chloroplast and they had like some questions like, where is it? Where does it hang out? I could often enough, not always, but often enough, like pull up my data set and like search for their protein in there. And then I would get like a squiggly line. It is like, okay, here is your protein, like in relation to the other complexes. It doesn't like, it does, doesn't answer all questions immediately, of course, but it gives you like a nice, sort of different look at, at where a protein is because very often when you want to do this sort of stuff especially when you 
come across like a protein somewhere in some other experiment um, and you want to follow it up in on like on a, on a gel traditionally what you would do is like make an antibody against it and that takes forever it takes like between six to 12 months depending on like how lucky you are and sometimes it doesn't even work um so it take, takes forever to just to have a look at something that might be interesting or might not be interesting to go through the whole process but with this complex home data set you could just like type in the gene name and see it if if the mass spectrometer can detect it you will see it in in your profiles um and i quite like that um to to do to use that as as such a tool to use that as a sort of explorative um hey here let me show you something quick let me let's have a look together at the thing that you're working with um and let's see if there's something interesting in my data set where your thing is sort of caught uh as a sort of secondary result in there as something that i didn't aim for but it's there anyway will you What is the the follow up that you will do for for this research? Is there something to continue? I think you had like some some genes that you wanted to study further. So um, is this sort of um, like another project in there, or is it just like to clarify some like smaller questions? Um, there there are some projects still running in the lab that are related. I think what was um, it's not. It's not direct follow up uh, from from uh, this this project. So um, this project was probably kind of a one shot, and it was what was important for us is to get uh, a better knowledge of the composition and to get uh, some some insights about the assembly. And now we are interested in the assembly, so we have uh, candidate assembly factors, and um, now that we we have an idea of uh, the different the order of the assembly of the different steps uh, we can we can check in our in our assembly factors uh, mutants if um, if the step is happening or not mm-hmm. and it's good to have this this uh, this model for the assembly model even if it's not the um, highest resolution at least uh, it will help us to understand what's going on in in other mutants And uh, is there some some like other cool projects that you want to talk about? Um, I there was one sort of um, big lighthouse project that, that we would always like mention you on or like talk to you about with, with involving the mistletoe. It was really fun. I think we also talked about this on 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 our blog. Um, we'll link that also in the show notes. It was a really cool story. Is there something other cool going on that you uh, that you want to talk about? Um. Let me think. Now there there are other um, cool projects running at the moment, but it's too early to talk about them. Very um, active research. Maybe maybe the, maybe in a few in a in a few years we can have another podcast on on something. Okay, that's that's probably <laughs> the good way to go. Okay, then I'll just cut that question. <laughs> What? No, I think it's I think it's like important to know that you know scientists are developing things over some years and okay you know yeah true it's like part we of talk the mystique lot, we talk a lot we about gotta, the process um, of of how we do research no it's, it fits, fits actually very well and also like it keeps science kind of like enigmatic and sexy like you don't know what's happening you have to wait to discover things like and it's also one of the reasons people like say they they like doing academic research is because like they're the first one to discover a thing so 
you know, yeah. Etienne has the power of these results until he chooses to share them with the rest of the world. <laughs> That's true. No, no, but um, there, I mean, the, there's lots of things happening in the lab. You know, you know what it is. There's always something happening. Um, but until you have a, a story that is complete, that you trust, that you're 100% sure that you have all the control, that you have everything and that uh, you can publish it, it takes some time and I'm not there yet with any, any other uh, current story. So I, I don't want to, to uh, spread uh, false hopes or false news if, uh, if I'm not sure. <laughs> no? No bold statements about how, um, I don't know, mitochondria are going to save the world or something? Well, what, what I can tell you is that I had a project where uh, we thought it was extremely exciting and um, uh, it could have been a very high-impact uh, research and uh, we just found out a few months ago that um, it was an artifact. And uh, oh, now yeah. we found out we found out the origin of the phenotype, and it's absolutely not what we thought initially. Um, <laughs> Can you tell so, us what it is? <laughs> uh, you, 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 I mean, you probably remember the the the, the crazy mutant that I found in the greenhouse in Golm. Uh -huh. um, that was uh, this mutant uh, combined with an overexpressor. And that has a no complex one in it. Mm -hmm. Maybe you remember from from my talks when I was there. And uh, and basically, we found out that the the phenotype is due to the insertion site of the of expressor cassette. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh, the one so, thing that's always like as a warning. Everybody's like, "Oh, watch out where it integrates," and you you should check. And like you do, you, you check obviously, but very often you're lucky. But this time you weren't. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I if I if I was not lucky because uh, there's still a project going because now we 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 continue because we're studying what's the gene where that was knocked out by the insertion site. Oh yeah, what oh, you don't doing. know what so, it is though. Okay. Um, we know that it's a mitochondrial protein, but we we don't have a function, so it's it's still something it's ongoing and it's it's still interesting, but uh, yeah, it's it's science, you know. It, always full of surprises yeah it's also the nice side of doing like curiosity driven like basic research where you can follow up these like bizarre clues instead of being like oh no this is not answering the direct question of how to make plant leaves bluer or whatever the you know applied science is you can kind of be like oh this is really weird and cool let's like look into why this is happening and thus further all of human knowledge <laughs> yeah. I'm very pro basic science. Can you tell? Like, yeah, yeah. Non applied I just, stuff. I remember when you went out uh, and harvested these mistletoes. It's like everybody of us was going into like the greenhouse and um, just doing like tobacco or arabidopsis or some crazy people did tomato. Um, but you went out and were like, oh yeah, there's this interesting thing. And so you sampled like a full bag full of these like mistletoe. What is like the the flowering? The flowering buds that you were taking, yes, yeah, the buds, yeah, yeah, the buds, and then, um, yeah, then grinding them down like with your like strong, like powerful process, um, and and looking at them, and I found that so exciting. I was, I found that really one of my my best like memories of like how I want science to be was like watching watching you work and seeing this sort of approach of like looking at something with wondering what's going on and then just like very systematically 
analyzing it and having like very cool stories from that. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was really fun. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's it's, it's again it's a, a surprise. It was not planned and uh, it was an opportunity. There were there were some on the car park, so easy. And uh and there was a lot to take plants inside of the institute. <laughs> yeah, true. That was also like a whole thing, right? Like you had to make sure that you don't bring any pests inside. Yeah. Um, so I, I had to put them in a bag and go directly in the cold room. Yeah. <laughs> but that was allowed. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I think that's kind of a nice note to end on this like curiosity driven research. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, I mean, unless you want to ask why mitochondria are, are better than chloroplast, do you want to have a discussion <laughs> in your room? It's on your questions. Yeah, I wrote down like why mitochondria and not the superior chloroplast, but I think we touched on it a little bit. And I say like I like them both, and I think most plant cells they can't do without any of the two. Um, I, 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 I just noted that today Tegan said twice that mitochondria are better. <laughs> yeah, I it's mean, on I, record. <laughs> so I am not like doing photosynthetic research anymore, so all bets are off the table. I, you know. <laughs> do research in fish and bats they don't have chloroplasts <laughs> no but i have a sort of um a question that ties in into the last fact that i want to talk about today is like Etienne, ten whenever you ordered something from a from a supplier did you ever get something where they sent you the wrong stuff oh no and what was the yes. worst stuff that you ever got um no what what happened to me that i got the the wrong mutant <laughs> so i i ordered i ordered some uh, some mutants uh uh, from the stock center, and they they sent me the the wrong mutant, so they they had to mix up with another order probably. Oh, but they was it labeled as the wrong thing, or did it take yeah, you, it, you know it, three it, years of research to find out it was the wrong thing? No, no, it it, it was the wrong label, so I found out straight away. And then they contacted me saying, "Oh, did you get the the tumor by mistake?" <laughs> yes, but no. Otherwise, um, I did not get wrong stuff. I've had that with primers being switched around where it was there was a plate mix up so the, the the plates were switched and we didn't know which primer was which but like this all feels very good compared to what I know Yarm is about to talk about. <laughs> yeah, because now we come to this. <laughs> Cat fact. Yeah, because my cat fact today is that in a lab, um, actually I forgot where it was exactly, but somewhere in the United States, they wanted to order 50 milliliter falcons, um, conical tubes. So these are like... Just to clarify, not the animal falcon. It's like yeah. a big test tube or like a plastic <laughs> test tube. And these are, um, yeah, yeah, plastic test tubes that you use constantly. Like, I don't know how many hundred or thousands of these I went through during my career in the lab um, because you constantly whenever you have make some buffers and some stuff um, if it doesn't fit in an in an epi you put it in a 50 ml tube uh, so somebody ordered some and they wanted to get a full box of them and then i got a box that was labeled 50 ml falcons and when i opened it up it was lots of taxidermied cats or like cats not even fully taxidermied yet but cats vacuum sealed dead cats vacuum wrapped that's the disgusting thing right vacuum wrapped dead cats in formalin or like some other preservative um and what's that thing where you put the the meat in the hot water um I'm sous -vide. <laughs> it looked like that it was it, not good it, it, it wasn't it wasn't good and imagine the surprise um of 
like you're opening the box that was just sent to you and you just need new falcons you need new tubes for your research you open it up and you just have a bag of like four or six that cats in in plastic wrap that was pretty terrifying but it, it was also a mix-up at the company the company sells these tubes but they also sell these cats for um, dissection experiments for like biology classes in high school um, they're actually quite expensive because they're like treated like preserved in a special expensive liquid so they don't smell and you can do like proper biology dissections very important if you work can with you like, imagine yeah can you imagine getting the customer service and like, i'm not going to mention like where the customer service would be like they're just like well actually if anything you've i mean those cats are worth more than your falcons so if anything we've done you a favor like yeah yeah i think they um they they wrote that it was quite a, a bizarre phone call that they had with like the the customer uh, support there of like look we just got sent a lot of dead cats and we don't need them <laughs> what shall we do now and I don't know how they resolved to say they didn't uh, write that on Twitter um, but they had some pictures and I was like oh this is this is one of the worst things I can imagine getting sent in a box at work when I'm expecting something else um, yeah. So uh, I'm just looking like, yeah, we will put a link to the tweet uh, in there, but like only click on it if you are okay with seeing like what we're describing cat. with words. Yeah, if you want I to. I mean, that whole cat fact section should have some sort of warning on it now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think talking about it is not as bad as seeing the pictures. Um, so I would recommend not looking at the pictures and, uh, unless you know what you're doing. Although like it's fine. It's not that bad, but if you if you are sort of sensitive about these things um maybe cl don't click the link uh, so yeah <laughs> that was my great cat fact um for today and that was the show thank you so much etienne for being with us uh it was a pleasure talking to you thank you for having me um i'm i'm gonna do the outro now <laughs> If you want to get in touch with us about anything that we said in this show, um, you can find us on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants for Pets. On Instagram and Facebook, we're at Plants and Pets, and there you're normally talking to me. Uh, there we're also running a special event all through April. Um, you had the idea, Tegan, and I think it's really cool. We're doing a little uh, hashtag April Science Challenge, um, a list of prompts um, for like interesting posts and cool stuff. And we just started today with the first one um, and the first prompt was introduction. Yeah, go go and follow us and retweet that or whatever the, the Instagram version of retweet is so that we don't give up on like the eighth day. As I do with so many things I commit to doing for a whole month. <laughs> yeah, uh, we also have a website plantsandpipettes.com um, where we talk about plant science once or twice a week um, the last post is from you right Tegan you wrote about this this bug so it's a white fly that um, has developed a defense against some plant toxins which are supposed to make the fly very very sick but the fly has worked out how to detoxify the toxins and it basically has done that by stealing a gene from the plant itself yeah um so go and read the full story it's really cool and um rate and rate this podcast wherever you can tell your friends about it uh and opening closing music is caravana by philip gross thank you so much for listening goodbye bye